0: I'm Chelsea Farrell, the Assistant Director of the Lakshmi Mental and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University. The mission of the Institute is to engage through interdisciplinary research to advance and deepen the understanding of critical issues relevant to South Asia and its relationship with the world. As part of this engagement, the Institute is running a series this spring and summer on a number of topics related to COVID-19. We're so glad you joined us today, and please consider joining us for our remaining seminars. I'd like to introduce the moderator of today's panel, Dr. Zainab Karashi. Dr. Qureshi is the director of the LEAPS program at Evidence for Policy Design, or EPOD, at the Harvard Kennedy School. She oversees implementation of the RISE program, research on improving systems of education in Pakistan, and is currently working on the education response to the COVID-19 crisis there. She has previously worked for various organizations across the education sector in Pakistan, implementing low-cost education delivery programs, and designing alternative models for low-income schools. Thank you for being with us today, Zainab.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to this panel discussion on education responses to COVID-19 in South Asia. Since we're talking about South Asia, I'd like to take a minute and begin by talking about some tragic news coming out of South Asia. Actually, in the last two, three days, first we had the cyclone that hit Bangladesh and in India that has taken a lot of lives and a heavy toll there. And this morning we heard about a tragic plane crash in Pakistan with 100 people on board. This is still a developing situation, so we don't know the extent of the damage yet. But, you know, just important to understand that South Asia is grappling with issues beyond the coronavirus crisis right now. And coming to COVID-19, COVID-19 has shut down schools all across the world. It has shut down schools throughout South Asia, from primary schools to higher education. The region suffers from a bunch of unique challenges in any case. It has suffered from a learning crisis for decades before COVID-19 hit. COVID-19 is expected to further cause learning losses and exacerbate the education crisis across all countries in South Asia. To discuss some of these issues further and to give us their thoughts on events and and the responses of countries, we have with us two distinguished professors from Harvard University today. Professor Fernando Ramers is the Ford Foundation Professor of Practice in International Education and the Director of the Global Education and Innovation Initiative and of the International Education Policy Program at Harvard University. Professor Fernando Ramers has repurposed a lot of his work since COVID-19 hit to actually do a lot of response work to the coronavirus crisis across the world. We'll, We'll be super excited to hear from him about what he's doing, what he's seeing, and how countries are responding. Professor Asim Khaja is the director of the Center for International Development and the Soumoto Foundation for Advanced Studies on International Development, Professor of International Finance and Development at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's also the co-founder of the Center for Economic Research in Pakistan and has also worked on education, amongst other issues, especially in Pakistan for a long time. Very excited to have you both on board. And to begin this conversation, I'd kind of like to frame what we're talking about with two sort of main overarching questions. And the first, I guess, would be what do you think are going to be both the short and the long term consequences of COVID-19 on education in South Asia and what are countries doing to respond to this? How are they preparing to mitigate some of these effects that they are, are bound to face?
2: Thank you very much, Zainab. Essentially, I'm going to talk about three things we've done. One is a survey that we conducted about seven weeks ago now to identify the early impact, the emerging needs generated by COVID-19 emerging responses. I'm in the middle of analyzing a follow-up survey right now. The second thing we did was to create and annotate, to curate a list of annotated resources to support online learning. And the third bucket of things we're doing is to produce 100 case studies of innovative responses to sustain educational opportunities and I'll just be introducing those right now. So what we found six weeks ago is that most schools shut down schools and that they were caught unprepared for this crisis and that the response one could anticipate from that was a tremendous loss in educational opportunity and the exacerbation of all kinds of inequality gaps. At the beginning, most governments essentially told the schools, you figure it out, and provided very little support. That has changed. What I'm finding to my surprise in the analysis of the second survey is that throughout the world, in most countries, governments really have stepped up to figure out ways to sustain educational opportunities in very little time, in very creative ways, and that there is really an emergence of innovations. I'm going to share first the responses of that survey for the 99 different countries that participated. So here you have what were identified as critical needs, as you might anticipate, How do we continue academic learning for students? How do you provide professional support to teachers? How do you ensure their well-being? How do you support students who lack the skills to learn independently? How do you ensure their well-being? These were the needs that respondents to that survey, which included not only government officials, but teachers and administrators at the school level, anticipated. They also anticipated very challenging priorities. I essentially didn't know how we we're going to sustain academic learning, how we we're going to provide support for teachers and so on. And we asked them about implementation challenges. And of course, the, at the very top was the availability of technological infrastructure, addressing students' emotional health, making sure there was the right balance between digital and screen-free activities and so on. Now, I've extracted here from that survey the responses for South Asia. These are small samples. These are the countries from which we have respondents in those surveys. And as you can see, there are small numbers, but the picture is not very different for South Asia. So these are results. What are the critical areas? Very similar to what we saw for the entire 99 countries. Essentially, sustain academic learning, sustain well-being for the students, ensure support for parents, for teachers, and so on. Challenging issues, very similar set of priorities right? As for the full sample, and the same with implementation challenges. I do have to say that this crisis has been a real moment of truth because it has helped to do two things, I I believe. One is to help us appreciate the importance of schools. I've heard so many over the last decades kind of dismiss the importance of schools. What do they do? I've heard so many things that in today's context sound irresponsible, right? If we give, give every kid a laptop, things would be dandy. If we just place the school in a public square, they would teach themselves what they need. And I have a sense that everyone around the world, but especially parents, is realizing how important that institution is. So I think that's a a real silver lining of this crisis. Maybe we're going to be less irresponsible coming out of that and are going to say, let's try to make these institutions work, because they definitely were doing some things that parents are very poorly equipped to do on their own. And it is absolutely untrue that if you give a kid a laptop, they will teach themselves what they need. Now, in that survey, there are some unexpected positive outcomes. And that's what I want to talk about. I don't want to be Pollyannish and talk about this crisis necessarily as having a lot of silver linings and more of the fact that more than 5 million people have been impacted, that 333,000 people have lost their lives, and that we're in the middle of this thing. Many more will die. And the livelihoods of many have been impacted. But there are, as in every crisis, there are opportunities. And that's what I want to focus on at the moment. So look, this was seven weeks ago, the respondents, the 333 respondents to that survey were saying, look, we have seen new partnerships, emergency, public-private partnerships. Essentially, the best responses that I have seen are the responses where education leaders say, we need everyone who has anything to contribute to come together and contribute. And they're very good examples of that. Multi-sectoral coordination, more societal interest in education, a real silver lining, more pedagogical autonomy for teachers, which is not a bad thing necessarily, more autonomy for students to manage their own learning. For those who can seize up to the opportunity, this will be, will be a, a good thing. In that first report, we produced the checklist. We basically said listen, every educational institution needs to have some kind of a plan for educational continuity because this is not going to be a summer holiday. This is going to be a protracted situation. And even as Schools try to come back and to resume operations. Nobody knows how that is going to work. I wouldn't be surprised if they come back only to have to dismiss the students again. And so these were the recommendations we made at that point. The second product we produced was to curate online resources, knowing full well, we knew that from the survey, that online learning at best is serving 20% of the kids. But there are two ways in which organizing that information is helpful. Number one, If you can address the needs of 20% of the kids, you free up the capacity of the state to concentrate on the remaining 80%. And second, these online resources can inspire people to look for other ways that have greater reach learning from what already exists online. But producing a curated list of resources is not enough. You have to organize it in some way. And what we did here was to use a 21st century skills framework to organize these resources, to basically say in a context like this, It is especially important to attend to the whole child, to attend to their entire well-being. If you exclusively focus on the academics and you ignore the emotional well-being of these kids, you're going to make a bad situation worse because many of these kids live in homes where there are just too many people for the space available, where the people earn a living on a daily basis so you can imagine what the stresses are. And to basically put the pressure on those parents to say you have to keep with the content is actually increasing to the stress. The most important thing is to say, Is the kid okay, and how can you make the well-being greater for the kid and for the family? And I'm going to come back to that because some of the good practices we're identifying are exactly about doing this with very poor kids. But in this online list of curated resources, that's what we did, is we organized them exactly by by the extent to which they provided a a balanced curriculum. What we're now working on is spotlighting good examples of educational continuity. And I'm going to briefly refer to, they're not yet published, but you see on the top here, the link where you're gonna find them. This is a partnership we have built with the OECD, the World Bank and an organization called 100.org. And our aim is over the next month have a hundred of them. And I think we have right now, we have done about 20, but we've only published five, takes a while to get these out. But I wanna talk today about two of them, which pertain to the region and which I also think highlight very important lessons. So India, Reality Gives, I'm going to talk about Reality Gives. It's an organization that works with extremely poor kids in the slums of Mumbai. And I want to talk about the response of the uh, Maya Pradesh Digital Learning Enhancement Program, which is the result of a phenomenal public-private partnership. So Reality Gives is a community-based nonprofit that basically teaches English to very poor kids in India. And they realized even before the government shut down the schools on March 16, that they weren't going to be able to reach the kids in a very long time. And so they said, "Okay, how do we continue working with them? So they created a phenomenal mechanism to reach these kids through WhatsApp. And instead of focusing only in English, which is what they mostly do, the first thing they did was, let's focus on COVID response, public health messages for those kids, and their emotional well-being and mental health well-being. Because you can imagine that if you live in a place where there are so many people essentially crowded in a living space, the first need is mental health, is your well-being. So that's what Reality Gives is doing. They've basically expanded their team. They have a bunch of social workers, psychologists, understanding what are the needs these kids are facing, and in real time, using WhatsApp as a delivery mechanism to make sure that these kids can cope with the situation as best as they can. And they're still teaching them English. To me, it's a very good example of how an organization that is very clear about who they are serving can respond in a very short period of time using appropriate technologies. I've been surprised in these 100 cases, how many of them use WhatsApp. I didn't know how much reach WhatsApp had. And I didn't know the power that WhatsApp had to deliver curriculum. The Maya Pradesh initiative is one that I'm especially proud of, A, because it was led by a graduate of the IEP program that I direct, Aditi Nanja at the Central Square Foundation in India. But she didn't do this alone. This was a result of a partnership that existed COVID-19. It was a partnership between the Boston Consulting Group, the Central Square Foundation, the Kaivala Education Foundation, UNICEF, Education Alliance, and what they did as soon as the government shut down the schools is they said, okay, we need to create an alternative delivery mechanism. And they realized that there was not a single channel that was going to reach all the kids, that they needed to use multiple channels that included online for those who can be reached by online, that included WhatsApp for those who could be reached that way, And that included radio, by the way, which is a means of delivery and educational television that has existed for a long time and that has come in very handy. There are obvious limitations with radio. At the moment, the kids in Maya Pradesh are receiving two hours a day of radio instruction in math and science. And you might say, well, how good is it to have this one-way channel? Well, for many kids, that's not very different from what happens in school normally. In fact, it may be better because the quality of the programming is better than the quality that you would get if you have all kinds of teachers teaching math and science. And this program is now scaling throughout various states in India. It's a very good example for me. The valuable story here is not only that you can produce an alternative way of delivery, but that it is a public-private partnership that can help you develop that innovative response and that you can scale that kind of thing very quickly. There are other innovations, and I do think the message for the region is that this is a tremendous opportunity for cross-fertilization across countries. That if there has ever been a time when it makes sense to think of the world as a laboratory, this is the time, because there is no reason why everyone needs to reinvent the wheel. And that's what we're trying to do with this partnership we built with the OECD, the World Bank, and 100, is to try to identify good practices and quickly transfer them from one place to another. So, for example, I want to talk about two practices generated by the network, the Teach for All Network, which is an organization of 55 Teach for All like organizations. By the way, the one in Pakistan is doing phenomenal things at the moment. And one of, one of the things that this network does as Teach for America is basically get recent college graduates, place them in very disadvantaged schools, and get them to teach there for two years in hopes of helping develop a leadership pipeline of people who will then remain committed to working in education, not necessarily as teachers. Uh, throughout the rest of their lives, well, the two Teach for All fellows in Chile, in conversation with their peers in this global network, realized we're not going to be able to go to school. What do we do? And their partners in Nigeria said we began to produce radio programs using our iPhones. We've recorded these short lessons and we're broadcasting them via radio. So they said, let's do the same thing initially for their own kids, and they produced these very short series of programs in math and science that were very funny, very engaging. They were so engaging that within a week, everyone in the municipality where they work was using them. The head of the network presented that to the Association of Mayors. Within two weeks, 240 radio stations in Chile are broadcasting these programs produced by a team of 50 highly qualified individuals. These are people who are high achieving kids who graduated from a range of programs who actually know math and science. Well, through this network of 55, organizations that are alike, the Teach for Peru is now doing the same thing. So there's a team of people in Teach for Peru that is doing this for the hardest to reach kids in the entire country. And I think the message here is that this is a time in which having a global network that makes it possible for people to learn, and not a global network as in the big development organizations that operate at 30,000 feet or 300,000 feet from the ground, but a global network of people who are actually embedded in schools and who are directly working with uh, in high poverty context. If you have peers in other places from which you can learn in real time and you can figure out how to adapt and re-engineer that solution to your context, uh, that's the way to go. Let me give you another example of that. One of the case studies that we'll be publishing soon is the Rising Academies Network. Radio education has been working for some years in Liberia and Sierra Leone just the last two weeks. This was adapted in Pakistan and they took a lot of the very same programming, which is essentially English, math, and science. And they said, we can repurpose that. And in a context where you have nothing else, being able to adapt something that has already been tested in another place can be very, very helpful. Let me finally conclude talking about after the pandemic. To my surprise, I have discovered that this time, it's a time where a lot of people are thinking about the future. So just serendipitally, I had scheduled to publish three books, which have nothing to do with the pandemic on the surface, but they have everything to do with reinventing education system. And I knew they were going to be published over the last two weeks. And I said, this is the worst possible time to be publishing these books. Who's going to read them? Well, this book, Educating Students to Improve the World, published four weeks ago, has been downloaded 102,000 times since it was published. Our book, which is A Comparative Analysis of Education Reforms in Eight Countries, published two weeks ago, has been downloaded 58,000 times. And we've been hosting seminars to discuss them, and I've been surprised that people at this time are thinking about how do we need to reinvent education. But the way I've come to understand it is this pandemic has made it very obvious, A, how important education is, how important formal education is. And the extent to which there are some things we should be doing differently, there are some capacities we should be developing that we have not been developing, and so that is my hope going forward. My hope is uh, here are some links to a discussion that we finished yesterday, attended by thousands of people, is that maybe in this tragic moment, in this in this time of loss, there is an opportunity for us not just to sustain opportunity, which is essential, educational opportunity, but to reimagine how we're going to do that looking forward. I don't expect any of these to be easy, but I think conversations like this one are exactly one of the ways to stimulate that reflection. I'll stop here. I will stop basically saying that, to me, a pandemic is the quintessential adaptive education challenge, and one characteristic of an adaptive challenge is that nobody knows how to solve it. That's the difference with a technical challenge, so we can depend on what has been done before, there is one thing we know about these challenges is that there are some things that make it more likely that you will solve. It. And one of them is humility. The awareness of what you don't know and the recognition that you need others to solve it. And so creating opportunities for different people to come together, for people who see different aspects of the education system, for people in the public and private sector to collaborate, make it more likely that you're going to have the necessary creativity to solve a problem than facing the crisis with an arrogant mindset that presumes that you know how to solve it. And I have seen, just as with the health response, this is making very visible the difference between good leadership and bad leadership. The leadership that ignores the facts, the leadership that ignores evidence, the leadership that actually makes it difficult to collaborate is the leadership that has actually produced more deaths than were necessary. On the contrary, the leadership that is humble, the leadership that doesn't deny the reality, the leadership that doesn't lie, and the leadership that invites collaborations across all kinds of institutional divides is the one that has produced
3: the better outcomes. I'll end here.
1: Thank you very much, Fernando. So I'd like to invite Asim.
3: Great. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you, Fernando, for those comments. Uh, There's a lot of overlap between what he said and what I will say, and so it's great. Fernando set the stage. Before I begin, I did want to acknowledge, as Zainab said, this is a really tough moment as we speak for Pakistanis. And my heart goes out to a lot of people who may have lost loved ones at this time with the crash and also the events that Zainab said in Bangladesh. Uh, I think these are trying times for a lot of us uh, in the region. And so, both because of COVID and because of our response to COVID, and because of other things that may be happening. And so, you know, I just wanted to acknowledge that as much as we're discussing kind of these educational outcomes, for us to respect and and recognize that loss that people are facing. So I I hope they all come out of this stronger despite kind of the tragedies they may be facing. So with education and COVID, I wanted to make three broad points and let me first just state what those points will be and I'm going to spend a couple of minutes on each and then I hope later on in the discussion we can expand on, on these issues. So I think the first point and this is going to kind of also be the arc of I think response, I think the first is recognizing the severity of the issue i think there's been a lot of focus obviously on health outcomes but you should think of education as having potentially much more persistent and longer term outcomes than some of the other things we're thinking of especially given the burden of the impact on education which is being on the youngest of our countries and hence our future and so the first one I want to make is recognize how significant this issue is. This is a call to policymakers, to citizens, to nonprofits. The second point I want to make is perhaps, a, I don't think it's fair to critique people at this point, but I do think it's legitimate to raise concerns, is the idea of whether online education or response currently is adequate. And I'm going to argue what I think are potentials over here, but also recognize the shortcomings. I think it's very important to do that and not delude ourselves about what we are getting. This is true both in countries like Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, sort of Nepal, South Asian countries, but it's also equally true as in developed countries, including the US. So the second point I'm going to make is the kind of limits of what we're doing currently in terms of online education. And the third point, I don't want to end up with a critique I very much see hope in terms of what we can do. And so I want to end with talking about what are the opportunities to rethink education, to reimagine education we're just discussing, and what those may be. And I want to give some tangible examples of those, uh, things that I'm beginning to see happening, but things I would love to see that I don't see as much as yet. So let me now go through these three big buckets, right? So so the severity of the problem, the response to what we're currently doing, and then where we could be going the opportunity that may be uh, in this, the silver lining that may be in this dark cloud uh, that we have. Um, In terms of severity, look, let's be very, very clear. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that even short-term shocks like these, and in the large scheme of things, three to four months of school closure seems like a short-term shock, uh, these will have long persistent impacts and impacts which exacerbate inequality. So both the average level of learning will drop But also the difference between the haves and the have-nots will get worse. Now, why am I saying that with such surety? I'm going to, you know, draw on work that uh, colleagues of mine have done. This is Tahir Andarabi and Jishnu Das has a great uh, paper looking at the impact of the earthquake in Pakistan. And what they find is the earthquake shut down schools on average for about 14 weeks. And what they find is they follow these children about four years later. And what they find is while schools have reopened, attendance is back online, you know, the the observable metrics of education seem to have recovered. Learning has not recovered. These children are basically a year and a half to two years behind in learning where they should have been. So when you compare kids who are affected close to the earthquake with those who are not, this, and this is already in a, in a case where the learning levels were poor to begin with. So the fact that when you have poor learning levels and you can still get a year and a half to two years drop in education is really profoundly shocking and worrying. And that's something I want to underscore. This shock uh, is similar, if not worse, in nature to the earthquake. So the best evidence we have now will suggest that the effects, unless we do something about it, will be long term and persistent in a way. And, you know, for those who care about growth and sort of think about things like that in a way that will affect growth, not just education. This will affect the productivity of your future generations. And it's not in one region. It's your entire country. So, I don't want anyone to walk away not understanding the gravity of the situation that we are in. I don't want to scare people, but I want to highlight this as a a fundamentally important question. Also what they find in the same paper is these differences are exacerbated by preconditions. So for instance, you come from a household where your mother is educated, these losses are less severe. In fact, in some cases, they're non-existent. However, if you come from a situation where you don't have an educational environment at home, these losses are more significant, which means that you will increase. These are already unequal situations. You're going to exacerbate inequality. So that's about the worst thing you can do, where you drop the mean of something and you increase the variance of it at the same time. And so I want for us to to realize that. Now, that sounds like doom and gloom. I don't want us to leave with that impression. But again, as I repeat, I want us to recognize and devote resources, uh, therefore, to, to address this. So that's the first point. The second point, which I mentioned and I want to elaborate on now, is the online response. Look, the reality of it is, and Fernando has said this earlier, there's some great efforts going on. I don't want to at all sound negative on them. Within the Pakistani context, the national television is airing TV shows. For those who don't have internet access, VCF TV access. There are some great online efforts going on in Pakistan. Zainab should talk when you get a chance in the discussion about what SERP uh, and you guys are doing at Ilm Exchange, which is kind of online education. There's lots of efforts like that. That said, we should not delude ourselves that these efforts will either supplant what was happening normally they will not they absolutely will not they were not in the us either you know i think we should realize that most of our children will have lost about five to six months of education despite what we're doing we need to admit that and accept it and not as i said to ourselves about it that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing stuff but we should recognize what it's capable of achieving and again This will create inequalities. You know, you should all introspect about your own families. All of us are becoming teachers at home, for those of us who have kids. In fact, if anything, you might be getting some kids getting tremendous skill. A Nobel laureate is teaching their child now, right? Because he's not giving all that many talks or he or she, and they're spending time with their children. Now, that works if you're a Nobel laureate and if you come from a high SES background. But if you're a single mother and you've just lost your job and you're trying to figure out where to get food you are not going to be educating your child. You don't even have devices or technology. And I'm not talking about our parts of the world. I'm not talking about the U.S. There's a great article by Dave Deming recently in the New York Times where he talks about this as well. And so, you know, we need to recognize that this will, our response not only is a shock unequal, our solution is also unequal. In economics, we call this a regressive solution. It's a solution which the haves will benefit more from as opposed to the have-nots. We I mean, need to understand this. And even if you give laptops, even if you give tablets, which a lot of schools and uh, districts are trying to do in rich places, even then, access is not equal. Understanding is not equal. Familiarity is not equal. Right? So we need to recognize this. So with online education, I'm hopeful, but I'm also skeptical about what it can achieve. And I think educators need to understand that. Okay. So now you might say, oh, gosh, man, this is getting more and more depressing. It's not. I think what Fernando said earlier is very much true. Look, education is like any machine, like finance. These are fields which have very strong views, right? We have armors, and some of these armors are great. Some armors are not so great. They're legacies of old ways of thinking. There is a big chink in this armor right now, a big gaping hole in the armor. And that's always an opportunity. Whenever people are willing to rethink That's a great opportunity. Great progress can happen in moments of crises because it opens up our way of thinking. It alleviates our blinders that we wear. I think this is precisely that moment. I think we can look back at this moment in history and say, you know what, COVID was terrible and tragic, but it forced us to rethink how we educate our future generations. And the reforms which we did in COVID had payoffs for the next 50 years. I don't want to sound overly now, Uh, you know, you're like, this guy's completely flipped, he must be bipolar. But, you know, I, I really do genuinely believe in that, that I think this could be a moment where we could look back and create legacies about how education should be. Let me mention two, and one draws heavily on Fernando's work, right? On 21st century skills. We are thinking of educational response as a very defensive response. Let's try and teach the stuff we usually teach and make it online. You're trying to fit sort of a a, a cylinder in a square peg or something. But why not think differently? A lot of the literature that we have suggests, and again, I allude to Fernando's work, suggests that non-cognitive skills, which is an odd word to use, and I prefer 21st century skills, which, Fernando, you use. There's lots of skills which which are kind of thought, think of as grit, confidence, independence, creativity, motivation, values, love about education, love about learning. Think about things like these, which are kind of implicitly taught in school, but not explicitly. Think about the set of skills like that, which are naturally taught through technology. Technology is good at some things, fabulous at some things, actually. So instead of trying to replicate that traditional form of education, think about the set of skills, particularly those which have high return in the labor market. Dave, again, i mentioned Dave and Fernando's work. Dave has worked on this as well, which will have long-term payoffs and see if you can use technology to impart those skills. Let me give you one example, and Zainab will laugh at this because she knows this is a pet peeve of mine, a pet peeve in a good way, is I'm obsessed with uh, competitions for kids. Uh, I'm obsessed because in the US you realize a lot of education happens in an extracurricular sense. You have history balls, geography balls, science balls, you name it, there's a competition for everything. And it's usually run by parents. It's a lot of volunteer bases. These are critical. There's work by Diana Moreira, really nice work uh, at UC San Diego, which shows that in Brazil, when you have a kid win a math competition, other kids in the classroom of that kid do better because that kid creates a role model effect. Imagine in our context, you know, PTV is doing these things, Pakistan television. Let's have online competitions. Let's celebrate our children who are successful. This is easy to do. Kids are there. And it could be in any subject. In South Asia, there's a tradition, particularly in Pakistan, of poetry. It used to be called Beit You would recite poems, verses, and you'd pick, you know, the last, the ending letter of the verse this would have to be started off with the next verse. These are fun competitions. Do them right? They will build a love of education at a time where kids are, when everyone's online, the whole world is watching. Imagine if your village, your daughter, who's, you know, six years or seven years old, wins a competition, what will happen in that village? What will happen in that community? I I guarantee you her video will go viral on WhatsApp, on Facebook, and that's going to excite the next generation. So for me, think about in the now, think about things like that which inspire our generation and build these skills. And they're very doable. This is easy to do. There's some brilliant people doing things like these who are desperate to kind of do this because it can all be done virtually. You don't need to, you can be socially distancing and still do these things. The second thing, and I'll end over here, is this is in the now. What about when schools reopen? Fernando mentioned this as well. Okay. I think there's a great opportunity there as well. So what's the opportunity? We could either be blind, And reopen and just hope, you know what, you were were in grade one before, you're just gonna get promoted in grade two, and we'll just kind of work it out. Please do not do that. The reality is your kid will have lost a lot. Now, you don't know how much they would have lost, especially given their differences. So, why not start the school year with a deep diagnostic exercise? Use technology to do it. Allow teachers, look, what's our dream in education? Our dream education is to go back to Socrates and Aristotle. Let me explain what. Our dream in education is personalized educational journeys for every child. Right? This is where when parents are phenomenal, when elders are phenomenal, this is what they're doing at home. They're giving each child a personalized educational journey. If we can do personalized educational journeys in our schools, we can only cover up the six months of loss. We can go far beyond that. And normally there's a resistance to doing it because we teach in a certain way. But this is the beauty of the chink in the armor. If we can say, guys, let's start with diagnostics and bring technology in. For every teacher in every poor community, we enable them to do this themselves. Simple tests, simple ways of doing it. And we give them group lesson plans. if you find out you have 20 children in your classroom, one of them just doesn't remember fractions, the other doesn't remember grammar, the other doesn't remember poetry, whatever the issue with a child may be, you start creating group lessons tied to each of those. You can't do it completely individually because it's very costly, but you could definitely do subgroups uh, as well. And again, there's work, Michael Kramer, Esther, and colleagues have some great work on tracking in Kenya. Where if you teach to the child's ability, Lant, Pritchard has written about this as well, you know, teaching less can be teaching more sometimes, as long as you target education to the child's needs. This is also the beauty behind like Khan Academy and others, that this dream that we can do, so, right? But I think this is an opportunity for us to empower our educators, private schools, public schools, nonprofit schools, because they're desperate, by the way. Remember, they need to figure out how to get back in the game. If we give them this opportunity, give them the tools to do so, and start with this mindset of diagnosis. And once you get this diagnostic in people's mindset, you can repeat it. You can tell teachers, do a basic diagnostic, start teaching to each group of children based on their needs. Two months later, do another diagnostic. And I'm using the word diagnostic different from testing. Tests signal your worthiness to the world. Play an important role. We've all come to colleges, universities because of some tests we took. But diagnostics are even more powerful. Because diagnostics help you understand what you don't know and help target resources to that, right? The more we can get teachers into this diagnostic mode, curriculum providers into the diagnostic modes, regulators into this diagnostic mode, and we repeat it, we will be able to not only address children's needs, but if we don't quite get the right way of teaching fractions, we'll figure it out. We'll try something else. So this repeat diagnostic process where we're not blaming the child for not knowing, we're helping the child's problem areas. And we're also helping teachers figure out what is an effective way to teach. Teaching is a really hard thing. We all teach, Fernando teaches, I teach. It's incredibly hard. If you could give me some tools to figure out, awesome, when you gave this lecture, I had a bigger impact than that lecture, I'll give more of the good lecture, but I need to be able to learn that. And so for me, those are the two moments of great hope which is being able to rethink the kind of skills we can teach, particularly skills which we ignore, which, you know, to use Fernando's term would be 21st century skills. And second, to turn our mindset into a personalized educational journey where we do regular diagnostics and kind of learn about how effective our own teaching and teachers will be. Let me stop, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Asim, that was great. To summarize, what, from what I hear from both, what both of you said, we need to deal with two different kinds of problems. On the one hand, we need to deal with what to do while schools are closed during the, the COVID pandemic uh, with distance learning solutions and remote learning solutions. And then the second one is what to do when we go back to school and how we need to prepare for that. Let's start with the first one first and then we'll delve deeper into the second part. On the first part, with the distance learning piece, Fernando, I'll ask this question to you first. You mentioned a, a whole bunch of initiatives that were happening, you mentioned innovations that were happening. I guess the underlying question that remains is the equity question, and it comes up over and over again. And I don't know if there is a good answer to the equity question on just, there are people who have access and there are people who don't, right? I know you mentioned some of what, what frees up, you know, if you if you focus on some, you free up resources for the government to focus on others. But what is that focus on others, and are we seeing any innovation on reaching children who may not have access to some, to digital media? I will also follow that up with another question directed to you from Professor Jacqueline Baba. Who says, great presentation. Has there been any attempt to evaluate impact on kids using Pratham like strategies? Uh, Do we know anything about the extent to which children in Chile, Peru, or Pakistan have absorbed the math and science lessons you were talking about? Without that information, it's hard to know the effectiveness of these strategies, and it's hard for governments and others to see which strategies they should be promoting in a time like this.
2: So, look, I think here it's important to distinguish two goals. If I were simply interested in understanding what is happening and how COVID is going to impact education, I could tell you right now. it's going to exacerbate inequalities in every possible way, imagine, period. But I'm not interested in just understanding it. I'm trying to minimize the suffering and the loss that this is going to cause. And so it's an old idea that I picked up from Karl Popper on the notion of re- reflexivity. Sometimes when you study something I and mean in how you study, you change what you're studying. And that's what I'm doing with these positive deviants. I'm not trying to delude myself into thinking, oh, the world is like that. I know how bloody hard it's been to find these positive deviants, but I am trying to create a PISA effect, actually building on what Asim described as competitions. I think you could extend the same reasoning to competitions across states. So, for example, when I write a case study about the city of Sao Paulo or the city of Bogota, and I tell you, What they're doing is exemplary in building these partnerships, in opening up opportunity for innovation, the subtext of that is, why is the city of Boston not doing that? Why has it been so bloody difficult to study U.S. districts, which I have tried to do, I will tell you. Why are there districts that refuse to be studied, to be analyzed? Look, I think this is a time when we all should become a little bit less patient with things that we've come, become accustomed to. And one of the things we have become accustomed to in education is the scourge of education is corruption, is the capture of education to serve private aims of all kinds, including the aims of the, all kinds of adults and not of the children. And this is a huge risk with this pandemic, that on the one hand, we're making the case for more attention to education, more resources, but that has to c- come hand in hand with a promise of greater accountability. I'm not willing to say I want more money for education to feel the needs of politicians who appoint their cronies to advance their careers in education. We need to create a context that makes visible good government and bad government by comparison. So, back to the inequality, I'm with you. I mean, I, I know what we're going to expect in a much more difficult, a more unequal world. I'm trying to do something that will increase the cost to those that will do nothing and accept that reality, and that will recognize good leadership. So for example, I talked to you about the two young graduates of Teach for Chile who basically had done what the government hadn't done. What I'm hoping this crisis will do, in part because we can spotlight them, is at the end of it we will say, this is the leadership that we need. And why did we have bad governments where we did? Why did we have governments who didn't do what they did? You know, there is, politicians may want to fabricate all virtual realities that they want, but at the end of the day, there is the discipline of the facts. When you look today at the number of people who have died per capita in different counties, different states, different countries, you can very clearly tell that some places had good leadership and some places had bad leadership. This is not the time to have the conversation, but I'm hoping we will have that conversation. And I'm hoping that when we have that conversation, we will be able to learn and recognize and elevate those who actually made a difference at this time. So I'm hoping I'm answering. I'm operating out of Karl Popper's theory of reflexivity, saying this is a time when we have to decide what is it that we're trying to do when we're studying. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create some competitions of sort. I'm trying to create a PISA effect that will elevate and make visible those who are actually making a difference in sustaining opportunity, and that perhaps will increase the cost to those who are sitting on their hands.
1: Thank you, Fernando. send over to you with a question, also continuing with the equity theme, your example about competitions, is that not also an extreme instance of unequal baselines? Uh, because who are the kids who would win? Who are the kids who would even participate? What happens to the kids of like single parents or unemployed parents? And you know, does this not also exacerbate inequality? Why not incentivize solidarity instead of competition? Uh, thinking of collective ways to add value to the community, collaborative projects where kids can work together, etc., through technology. And a second and somewhat related question from Professor Tarun Khanna is: some of the approaches to solutions. Public-private partnerships and collaboration to advanced uh, uh, 21st-century skills are things that people have been talking about for a long time. So, is this just a you know, is this a just it moment for for these things to be pushed through, or are we now identifying new things that need to happen as a result of this unprecedented shock?
3: Great, excellent questions, uh, both Jackie's earlier question and Tarun's question. So, Tarun, so I'm just going to reply in the way an entrepreneur does, which is. I view this as a thick market opportunity. And when you have a thick market opportunity, in other words, both a seller and a buyer are available, innovation will happen. And so the two questions to me are answering both This guy answer to that. The, the first instance is absolutely there is a market opportunity over here. And because there's a market opportunity, you will see lots of innovation as long as we facilitate and allow for that market opportunity to happen. So I'm, I'm very optimistic in that sense to jackie's question i think spot on let me respond in two ways you know when you think of these competitions this is the beauty of the u.s competition I always been fascinated by it you, you, we obviously mostly hear about the national spelling bee winner or the geography bee winner, but they're local competitions. They're town competitions. They're competitions in the same SES type level, if you will. And even winners of those small competitions, which don't necessarily get featured on national TV and other like, actually have a lot of positive kind of return to that as well. So I don't think, I think competition at smaller and smaller levels and segmented levels can still allow merit to emerge. It won't fully solve the problem you raise, but it definitely goes a fair bit in doing that. Second, I love the idea of team competition, solidarity. So there's a way to build, again, there's a comp- why am I so stuck on competitions? We have to realize people love winning. I mean, it's just, there's no way around it, right? It's, it's a deep desire for us to demonstrate success. Now, can you do it in a way that is a more kumbaya feel to it? Okay. Yes, there are ways to do it. And maybe the winning is in a way that everyone can be a winner. I know, you know, you know uh, I, I know there's a sense in which we can do that. To the extent we can do that, great. But I don't think we should shy away from that because, you know, ultimately education is an act of us excelling. I think if you can redefine it uh, as us improving beyond what we are capable of personally and defining success or wins relative to what we could have done ourselves, benchmark things differently. I think a lot of these inequality type issues can be addressed not perfectly, but to, to a reasonable extent.
1: I have one more question on this theme, and that is the question about parents, and this is open to both of you. What are some successful strategies to build capacity of parents and caregivers to support children's learning, especially 21st century skills or non-cognitive skills, at home? And again, when parents are not literate or educated, how do you do that? How do you do distance learning effectively?
2: I would encourage you to read the case study we have done about the city of Bogota because the city of Bogota began when they shut down the schools trying to deliver the curriculum through alternative means and very quickly they realized that was the wrong model. That they shouldn't try to reproduce the school in the home. What they should do instead was to think about the home as the new ecosystem or learning was going to take place and what they had to do was to use the channels that they had to strengthen that ecosystem. So they basically began to build curriculum that drew on activities that happen in the home and said, how can we engage? How can we make the kinds of activities that are happening in homes, educational activities and make that the curriculum? For example, they began to create programming that made it possible for families to discuss books, which were read not by families, but they they got, and Maya Pradesh did the same thing, by the way. They have these uh, TV education program where you have very prominent figures. In the case of Maya Pradesh, it was the chief minister who began this program. In the case of Bogota, they look for sports figures and celebrities and so on, and they read books. And the activity is not to read the book. The activity is to get the family to discuss what they did. This is something that in ordinary times schools don't do. You can assume you don't need that for the school to function. But I think that pivot, as we realize that this is not a two-week phenomenon, that we have to rethink the delivery channel is the right pivot to do that. Having said that, it's incredibly difficult to do what you're describing because the the impacts of this pandemic are multi-pronged. It isn't as if the only thing that has been impacted is the school and everything else is going dandy. It's that the families are stressed, is that they have no way to earn a living, is that you have a relative who's sick. So this is a moving target. And so I'm not saying by any means it's easy, but I think that that mind
3: shift that the city of Bogota went through is the right mind shift. Let me say two quick things to this. Thanks, Fernando. Um, just to compliment Fernando's view. First of all, no offense, and I'm not worried about parents like you. And I actually think parents like you, you're right, tools are hard. I'm, I'm really worried about parents who basically are at the bottom of the pyramid in, in many ways, in terms of their ability, their capacity, their resources. And there, there's a good news. The good news is the following. There's work that we did a while back, Tahir and others, and Jishnu, a paper called What Did You Do All Day, where we show basically that even if the mother isn't quite educated, as long as she has some awareness of education, those kids are learning more in households where the mother is educationally aware, functionally illiterate, but educationally aware. What do I mean by that? That mother knows enough to be able to say, look, I don't know how to teach you, but I'm going to make sure that you pick a copy, pick a textbook and do something on it. Even if you're scribbling on it, I can distinguish scribbles from something which looks sensible. And as long as I'm enforcing that, that's a mindset change. That change doesn't require a lot of capacity. So if we can impart for those parents this ability, you know, let's not be unfair on them. Let's not say, hey, we should think you should be teachers. No, they can't, right? They don't have the time. They don't have the resources. They don't have the capacity. That's unrealistic. But if we can say, you don't need to be teachers, but you need to be educationally aware and signal to your child the desire for you to have them learn and do better. That is extremely valuable, that's one. Second, we keep forgetting, we don't have a shortage of people in our parts of the world. That's the one beauty we have, we have lots of people. We have lots of women, especially women, who are giving private tuition in our villages, in our communities. Look, what's the one market that hasn't suffered from COVID and has done really well? Guess what, it's online Quranic education, which our kids are getting by religious scholars in Pakistan who are up on Skype at like 1 a.m after right about before they break uh, set, uh, start the fast or right after it teaching our children. That market has not suffered at all because of COVID. It's going perfectly fine. We have lots of women who are talented in our villages, in our communities, who can help your child and at a fairly modest fee. In fact, they don't even charge you a fee. The state should just say, you know what? We're gonna, we're gonna facilitate them. We're gonna give them online digital access for free. Uh, we're gonna have these women be compensated. And these women can guess what? Give localized personalized education. We have several million of them, right? So, I want to be careful about this as well. Let's deploy their talent, and that'll generate employment, by the way. And by the way, if you count those numbers in, we worry about labor force participation for women. Guess what? If you get that going, you get a huge positive dent in that, which has its own positive multiplier effects when you see these women in villages teaching and earning a meaningful livelihood through one of the best vocations in the world, which is educating our future minds.
1: Thanks. And that actually is a great segue into the second piece that we wanted to talk about, which is policy, right? Uh, Which is when schools reopen, what needs to happen? What what are governments doing to prepare for when schools reopen? Because from everything you, you've said so far, there are going to be multiple challenges that they will have to face, right? There, there are learning losses. There are like huge disparities within classrooms, within you know, one classroom where different kids stand differently. How should governments be thinking about this? And do you know of any good examples of how people are preparing to reopen? Let
2: me say a word. I think this is gonna be my, my last comment, which relates to what, when schools reopen and right now. And I, I wanna bring this topic home to universities because it's clear to me that the real binding constraint to alleviating the educational suffering caused by this pandemic is institutional capacity. So when you try to solve that question, where do you have capacity? I think we have an absolutely underutilized resource in universities around the world. There are 20,000 universities. And if 20,000 universities made it their business to say, I need to be part of the solution to this problem, The governments by themselves do not have the capacity to figure out, and they don't in most places, they certainly don't in this country, they know in every other country that I have, to identify and curate good curriculum, to figure out a way to develop effective ways to prepare parents or teachers, to figure out delivery mechanisms. If those 20,000 universities understood that it is their responsibility to be part of the solution now and afterwards, we would go a great way in alleviating that concern. And I think the real elephant in the room, the real question is, why aren't universities doing this? Why is this activity that we're doing right now a little bit exceptional, even within the context of the larger Harvard University? This is totally unacceptable. That at a time of crisis, at a time when humanity is experiencing a one in a hen- century devastating event, the most privileged educational institutions are navel-gazing are protecting themselves and their privileges instead of asking, what can I do to help those who will never have a chance to set foot in this university? So I think that's what governments should do coming out of this, recognize that they cannot do it alone, open up every opportunity for collaborations. And I think, I mean, I th- look, I think it's wonderful that Teach for All on whose board of directors I serve, a network of 55 volunteer organizations is doing tremendous things. But it is unacceptable that they should be doing more than the 20,000 universities. It is not right. And so I think what governments should do is learn that the solutions at this time came from making it possible to build these coalitions where everyone who had anything to contribute came forth and said, this is how I can be part of the solution. And I believe, look, I look at the health sector with great envy. Because in the great sector, what do I see? Tremendous coherence where you have on the front line, the nurses and the doctors doing heroes work. But behind them, you have the academy, you have our school of public health, our school of medicine, you have industry, and you have great coherence in having an institution that is actually helping make sure we address that. We don't have that in education. And the big actor that is missing in action is the universities. So I think what we should do is ask ourselves, how are we gonna be part of the solution?
1: That's fantastic, Fernando. Asim, awesome. when you address this, I feel like we haven't talked much about teachers either. So when you, I mean, where do teachers fit into the solution and how do you see?
3: I don't have much to say beyond echoing what Fernando said. He said it really well. And so I wanted to second that. I do think we have a, a, an opportunity to really contribute in a way. And I think to your point about teachers, my only comment there is, you know, we, we should think, we should recognize that there's not just current teachers, but there's potential teachers. I think we should recognize that there is a, and I alluded to this earlier when I said these women getting tuition in places. I think we need to create an enabling environment for not just the current teachers to be able to expand their stretch. Look, we've all now done Zoom classes of, I have a hundred kids. The difference between that and a thousand isn't that much, to be honest. And so the, the idea that we're all online now, we should leverage that. We should tax ourselves and we should say, you should speak more, you should teach more how to do that. And schools are beginning to do this. Universities are beginning to think about it. You know, we reluctantly enter the online education world, but now we're all there. I guarantee you every single teacher knows how to use some form of Zoom or like now. And we're getting more and more adept at it. And we're learning some good to it as well. You know, people who don't normally speak are speaking on Zoom because they can chat. And so that changes the the nature. In terms of policy, I think the only thing I would add to what Fernando said is this is an opportunity, view it as an opportunity, don't be defensive, kind of go on the positive offense as well. Trust that you can achieve even more. Because to me, when you are defensive, you know, if you make your target, hey, gosh, I wish I could get 60% of what I would normally get. Well, guess what? You're going to get 10%. If you make your target that I'm going to get 200% because I'm going to do even more, maybe you get 110%, right? So I want us to think that way. And that means opening up. That means... Asking for help when you need it, that means asking for help from non-traditional people, from civil society people, from NGOs, from private sector people. You talk a lot about in your works and in the op-ed you wrote in the Dawn, which was great. You talk about private schools as a as a complement, as a as a critical uh, you know, sh- should the government create supporting infrastructure for them, given that 40% of education in Pakistan in those schools, if they die, what's gonna happen to those kids? So should we also have a financial strategy? But you know, thinking through the government being a platform player, if you will. A player which provides this core infrastructure to enable others is the right way to think about it. I, I did want to mention one of the comments. Ethan had a great question and I wanted to give it credit uh, peer learning. Uh, and Ethan talks about how peer learning is important. Absolutely right. Look, when you come to Harvard, you know, sure, we teach you stuff, but you really learn a lot from your fellow students. That's the reality of it. And Harvard is great because Harvard has great peers. Right. Our faculty, I think, is decent, but I think what we really excel at is we have phenomenal students and those students teach each other. It's like beautiful, right? It's so easy being a teacher here because your students are teaching each other. Can we create online worlds where that happens, particularly worlds where we can connect peers who are atypical peers in the sense that your typical peers are your socioeconomic, your physical group? Can we get smart kids who are currently sitting around and say, hey, what if you became a peer to some kid in a poor country? Can we facilitate that? I think technology can be fabulous for peer education, but far more importantly, it can create peers who normally would never have been peers. And those are really powerful friendships. Those are really high delta, as I would call. Those are friendships which can take someone from a particular state of their existence or world. Theron leads this program, Crossroads, where first-gen kids come uh, to the Middle East. Think about programs like that that we can now create with the technology we have. And I think, Fernando, you're right. Places like Harvard should be at the forefront of doing that.
1: Thank you very much, Awesome. Thank you very much, Fernando. I would like to now hand back to Chelsea to wrap up this panel.
0: Thank you for joining us today. And a very big thank you to our moderator and to our panelists for the insightful discussion today on this very important and very timely topic. Thank you and have a great day.